Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. So today, by popular request, I have Sajad Rajpal with me, who is a consultant dermatologist at Belgravia Dermatology, and also he works in Birmingham. So thanks ever so much for coming today. Good morning, Louise. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Great. So we thought today I would talk about hair and hair loss because I speak to and see a lot of women who are perimenopausal and menopausal, and they have noticed that their hair changes in consistency, in growth, um, some of them are losing hair. So I thought we'd just tap your brains, please, to demystify and to talk about hair and what it is. So before we talk about hair changes, can you just enlighten us to talk about hair and what it is? Because a lot of people think it's just something we brush and groom and don't realise how important and how alive it is for us. So could you just talk us through? Yeah, this is a really important aspect of hair, which is that it is a very complex biological organ in our skin. Mm. And hair follicles are really very complex. They go through a cycle of growth, of rest and then of shedding. Mm. And we've got at least 100,000 hair follicles on our scalp. So we've got a lot of them. And, you know, there are all sorts of evolutionary reasons why we've got hair on our scalp and on our body. One of them is to preserve heat. Another one is to possibly harbor pheromones. And another might be to define our features as Mm. what is male and potentially as what is female. And that's why hair is so important, especially when somebody suffers from hair loss, because they may feel that they're losing their defining features, Mm. which can have a big effect on self-confidence. Yes, absolutely. It's really can make such a difference to people. And we know that, don't we? People who have lost their hair for various treatments, sometimes chemotherapy. And it's one of the first things that people, like you say, identify us, don't they, by our hair. And it's often a compliment, oh, your hair looks great. And you think, oh, good. But actually, when your hair starts changing, it can really have a big negative impact. And as you know, many women who are menopausal find that they have low self-esteem, loss of self-worth. And so it can really have a very negative effect. So how does our hair grow? What helps our hair grow? Well, I think the hair is programmed to grow if everything around it is healthy and well. Mm. So we've got to get enough nutrition to the hair. So if we're not consuming enough calories, for example, so there Mm. isn't enough nutrition going into the body, then the body will say, well, what is most important to me to keep me alive? And Mm. it will not prioritize the hair. So we find that inadequate intake of calories can lead to hair loss. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some people who are going through very stressful periods, for example, during the menopause, Mm. may respond to stress by not eating as much or not eating as well. Mm. And it can be something as simple as that, that has a knock-on effect on their hair, and that causes their hair to not be as strong as it was before. And what food groups particularly are good for our hair? That's a really good question. I think the first and foremost point would be to say you must have enough calories for Mm -hmm. sustaining your body. Mm. So you're not short of calories and you're not rapidly losing weight. Mm. So those who lose a lot of weight in a short period of time, and that's probably the mechanism that 
very stressful episodes like bereavement may, for example, lead to hair loss. Mm. Then we've got this whole sort of component of micronutrients. So if you think of the calories as macronutrients, yeah. and it really doesn't necessarily matter whether they come from carbohydrates, lipids, or proteins, or a healthy balance of all. Mm-hmm. Then we've got the micronutrients. And I guess the most important ones that we come across when we're thinking about hair are zinc and biotin. Mm-hmm. And these are nutrients that are thought to be very important for supporting hair growth. And many people will see on the internet mm. lots of supplements that contain these that mm. potentially may help hair growth. So we've got to get our macronutrition correct, but we've also got to make sure that we are not deficient yeah. in things like zinc and biotin. And how can we get enough zinc and biotin from our diets or does it have to be a supplement? I think if you're already having a healthy, and my strategy I should say, is if you're already having a healthy and balanced diet and you're not absorbing enough zinc and biotin, then it is likely that you require supplementation. Mm -hmm. What I don't necessarily agree with is for everybody to have supplementation and the belief that all hair loss will improve from taking zinc and biotin. No. That's the problem with this sort of catch-all solution to any you know, physical issue. There are people out there who have low levels of biotin, which is vitamin B7, in fact, and it may be because they're not absorbing it or it may be because they're on other medications that interfere with it or they have gut issues. Now, my strategy is to test the levels first to ensure that somebody is actually low Mm -hmm. and then provide supplementation and then to decide whether that supplementation has helped because it could just be low but not be causing a hair problem. Yes. So it's very important, isn't it? I think it's like any aspect of medicine that people have individualised advice because it's so easy now, isn't it, to Google hair loss and come out with all these recommendations but it might not be the cause of the hair loss and then you're potentially wasting your money on a lot of supplements maybe but actually taking things that you don't need so if a woman is thinking that they might have a a deficiency in something and they go and ask for a blood test what would you recommend you know blood tests because we often do iron levels as well don't we yeah so I think you know, iron is a really important mm. contributor to hair growth and iron deficiency is actually quite common. Mm. And the thing with iron is that it's not the fact that somebody has to be anemic for their hair to suffer, because in the same way as the body will consider how best to preserve its calories, the body will also consider how best to preserve iron if it's mm. got limited iron. So it will keep the red blood cells going whereas it might not keep the hair growth going. Yes. So we don't just check for anemia, which is a low level of hemoglobin. We actually check the body's storage of Mm. iron by doing a test for that called ferritin. So that's really helpful nutritionally for us to know. And sometimes somebody who's got a low iron level is actually undernourished. Yes. And it may be that they're not taking enough calories, and it could actually be that it's again, back to that macronutrition issue that they're not consuming enough. 
because it's really important I think with a lot of people I mean I personally don't eat meat and a lot of people now have a vegan diet and looking at iron intake is crucial and especially around the time of the perimenopause a lot of women enjoy not having periods or less frequent periods but there are a significant number who have heavy periods and so they're losing more blood so therefore they're more likely to be anemic or have low iron so I often look at results and a woman has told me oh I'm not anemic and they're right they're not but their ferritin their iron store level is low and as you know the range is really big isn't it so it might be reported as normal but you like to have what's your level that you would say you'd like to have I think you know I'd say a level of 50 Mm. or above and for hair hair responds quite slowly Mm. to any correction so we like to know that the ferritin level has been maintained above 50 for at least six months which is a long time isn't it because some of you might know the range it depends on the laboratory so we can't talk actual figures but often I see women with levels in their 30s or 40s and that's still normal so the computer will report it as normal but it's low if you're experiencing symptoms such as hair loss so absolutely yeah and the normal range I think in some labs can go down to 10. Oh really? So yeah (laughs) yeah so you know there can be really really wide ranges of normal but as you quite rightly say if there are symptoms that could be associated with low levels. I think the other thing is that if somebody is found to have a low iron and they take iron supplements, it's actually quite important to test afterwards uh, what the iron levels are. This is yes. something I see time and time again, mm. which is that, you know, I had a course, a one month course of iron. Yes. And so that's OK. Yes. Well, it may not be OK because... It takes a long time, doesn't it, to restore. And if it is due to a deficiency such as you're not eating enough iron, you're going to need to continue having iron. So you're right. I saw someone in my clinic yesterday who had been seen by a nutritionist, had some blood tests taken and said, just take iron for a month. And this lady was vegan. So that's not going to help. It won't replace the stores and it won't maintain her stores either. Yeah. And this is exactly the strategy that we have, which is replace, you know, get it to a level of 50 and then Keep, keep it, it maintain it at that level yeah. and make sure that the absorption is taking place yeah and, you know perhaps add in things like vitamin c mm-hmm. which helps iron absorption, the absorption avoid- doesn't it and not drinking coffee with your iron tablets because yes <laughs> that makes a difference too yeah and then what about other blood tests so can you do zinc and biotin as a blood test you can and i think i go down that route if i find that there is a need based on the clinical examination right so we've always got to kind of say what is likely to be going on here and what are the patterns of hair loss that are being seen on the scalp and could that be you know nutritionally derived Mm. and if it is then those tests become appropriate if it's not then they're not necessarily primarily appropriate Yes. I think that the other thing with hair loss, I think also, is that there can be more than one factor going on. Yes. So it can take time to dissect out the relative factors and target them each as they become apparent. Yes. And that's why, you know, even treating hair loss is not always a one-off, straightforward, take this, um, the problems will go away. No. And I think that's why it's very important to have a holistic approach. I see a lot of women who um, go to a trichologist because they are only focusing on their hair. 
and as you say it's from within as well isn't it and and hair and skin can be a marker of something else going on underneath can't it it's deeper yeah absolutely so hair loss can be a sign of other conditions mm. you know thyroid problems for example yes. and that's one of the things we may test as well well, we frequently test, in fact, because, you know, either a underfunctioning or even an overfunctioning thyroid can cause shedding of hair. Yeah. And so talk us through, obviously, we need to talk about the menopause because you're talking to me. Yeah. So talk us through <laughs> how hormones can have an effect on our hair growth and texture and pattern. Yeah, no, I think, well, if we're just looking at the menopause and hair loss generally, you know, hair loss is really quite common with the menopause. Mm. And there's some studies show that about 40% of women suffer from some form of hair loss, either at the perimenopause or after the menopause. And I think that's a lot, four out of 10 women. Yeah, that's significant, you know, that's almost half. Mm. And it's already a difficult time. And we just mentioned how important the hair is to femininity, to the appearance, to all sorts of aspects of self-esteem. And often the thing with hair loss is that it can be gradual so that there's a stage, especially in the early stages, where only the woman knows or appreciates that there's a change in her hair, either the texture or the volume. Mm. And often at that stage, when they say to others, perhaps their partner or their GP, that I'm suffering from hair loss, it may be that because it's not as obvious or as visible to them, that it's um, disregarded. And I think that can actually add on to the stress significantly. Because they know there's a problem, there's a change. And how do the hormones work then? How does oestrogen, because it's oestrogen obviously gets everywhere. And a lot of women are surprised when I say it can affect their bones, it can affect their skin, it can affect their blood vessels. But how does it affect hair? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we don't absolutely know how oestrogen stimulates hair growth. But there are oestrogen receptors in the hair follicles. Now, when we look at the women who suffer from hair loss, with the menopause, we find that roughly two-thirds have a general loss of hair over their scalp, and a majority Mm -hmm. of them will also find that they've got thinning of hair on the body. Mm. About one-third have hair loss localised to the frontal area of the scalp, and often they may have additional hair where they don't want it, perhaps on the face, the chin, the upper lip. So that tells us that perhaps the absence of estrogen in at least that proportion of women is allowing the testosterone levels, which may still be okay, to sort of proceed and cause what we call a pattern type hair loss, where it's affecting specifically that frontal area, but it's also stimulating Mm -hmm. those what we call vellus hairs, which are really fine hairs, to become thick. Now, the other group that get, you know, generalized hair loss, we don't know why the lack of estrogen in that category causes that because replenishing the estrogen with HRT doesn't always bring about hair growth. Mm. So this is the important thing that HRT does not always restore hair growth. No, and I think I see quite a few women who find that they have these subtle changes, but 
they've maybe started a type of HRT, often a combination tablet with a synthetic progestogen, and they find their hair hasn't improved. And then, as you know, we give body identical HRT, usually the estrogen through the skin, with a natural progesterone. And they often, when they have the right levels, they then start to find that their hair does change and improve. And often then, like you say, we look at iron levels and look at their nutrition And because it takes a while, it's not often until several months later that they're starting to notice. And it's often their hairdressers that pick up and say, gosh, what are you doing? What are you having? Because your hair's changed. So it's very important. I know the synthetic progestogens can often have a negative effect on hair as well, can't they? Yes, sometimes. And I think this is really important that you kind of have to give it time. So Mm. that if you haven't given enough time, the hair cycles are so slow to respond that any Mm. change takes between three to six months to actually see an effect. Now, some progestogens can have androgenic effects, and that Mm -hmm. can be a mechanism through which they accelerate or promote hair loss. So I'm interested to hear that you then manipulate that and you're finding good results. Yeah, it's all very interesting, isn't it? But then, as you know, we see some women who I wonder that their hair loss is related to their hormones and I refer them to you. And then you quite rightly say, no, it's not related at all. There's other conditions that can occur, especially more commonly in women in the midlife that are unrelated to their hormones, but it's just transpired and they think it's associated. So. There are other conditions, aren't there? We can't blame hormones on everything. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, we've got this condition of pattern hair loss, which is the genetic Mm. form of hair loss. And so it runs in families. And everybody recognises that men get that because it's very obvious. But actually, one in three women also have the genes for Mm. female pattern hair loss. And of course, as we get older, that's more likely to be apparent. And it may well coincide with the time of the menopause. So it may well be that there's a hereditary hair loss component going on. The other thing that, you know, you find often is that there can be scalp disorders. So things Mm. like a seborrheic dermatitis, which in Mm. its mildest form is eczema or dandruff, but actually can become, you know, quite a problem and quite common. And sometimes that can actually cause an unhealthy scalp and cause hair to not grow as well as it would otherwise. So often it can be a component of hormones, a component Mm -hmm. of pattern hair loss, a level of mild dermatitis, and possibly even some nutritional component going on. And as we said at the beginning, it's really important to personalise treatment according to what the relative factors that are present that are important are. Yes, and I think that's so key. A lot of women I see are very scared about taking HRT for lots of reasons. Often they're unfounded and they're based on myths, but some people worry that their hair is going to worsen and often it doesn't. I often say to them, well, if it's related to your hormones and we get your hormones right, then it often improves, but it doesn't make it worse if it's another condition that you're describing, because the other conditions are usually irrelevant to their hormones, aren't they? Yeah, no, I entirely agree that I've never seen a situation where HRT actually makes hair loss worse. Mm. And with HRT, you are replenishing and restoring 
what was there anyway. Indeed, yes. And especially with a body identical, it's very easy because it is natural. It's derived from the yam, the root vegetable. It's very safe. So it's very different to older synthetic medications. So it's a bit like, like you say, when someone has an underactive thyroid, it can cause symptoms that affect hair and we're just replacing the, the hormones, which is really important. So And we've already spoken, I know, about skin. So for some of you that haven't listened to our previous podcast, it's well worth tuning into and listening because skin also responds to hormones, doesn't it? And lack of hormones can cause skin changes. Yeah, definitely. I think we we discussed the variety of changes Mm. that we see from a lack of estrogen and the hair and skin are intimately related. Yes. And there are some conditions, like you say, if someone's got an eczema dermatitis or even something like psoriasis, it can affect the scalp because the scalp is obviously skin. So people often just think of the hair, but they have to think, you know, how the hair's growing from the hair follicles. So anything that irritates the scalp can affect it. Yeah, I mean, last time we discussed how the lack of estrogen causes a tendency for dryness on the skin mm. because of all the important natural moisturizing elements that estrogen stimulates in the skin well the same occurs in the scalp and you often find that the lack of moisture in the scalp causes dryness itching and even dryness of the Mm. hair itself and sometimes simple measures just to replenish the moisture in the scalp can actually bring about a healthier scalp and you know something as as coconut oil or almond oil a couple of times a week, believe it or not. And if you look at all the very sexy sort of hair treatments by many of the major Mm -hmm. brands, and you actually look at the ingredients, you will find a lot of moisturizing agents like coconut oil, which is a really simple remedy. It's actually spruced up into a nice sprayable product. But that's all it is. You're just moisturising the scalp, you're keeping the skin healthy and you're enabling the hair to grow better through it. Which makes total sense. I mean, I've got a very cheap oil that I found actually from Morocco and it's not got any fancy labelling, but I often massage it into my scalp overnight and it works really well. But it is important we moisturise our skin so we should be thinking about our scalp as well, shouldn't we? Yes, and I think the irony is that if you see a GP or even a hairdresser and say, I've got a scaly scalp or an itchy scalp or an irritable scalp, you'll get a shampoo. Mm. And a shampoo is soap. And we talk yeah. in our skin chat about how Absolutely. bad soap is. Mm. And suddenly, you know, people with dry scalps are given shampoos, which actually paradoxically mm. dry their scalp out even more, even yeah. though these shampoos may have some active ingredients. So those yeah. active ingredients are required but it may still be necessary to replenish the grease with something like as simple as what you're Mm. doing. It all makes so much sense. You're brilliant to talk to because everything you say makes complete sense, but often you don't think about it because we're sucked into all this commercialism and and marketing. And when you take a step back and listen to the voice of reason, it all makes sense. I mean, it's really difficult with hair, especially. And, you know, there is this phrase called trichoquackery (laughs) to reflect, Mm. you know, the amount of, advice and solutions that there are on the internet which is a one size fits all yes i will see people who may bring you know bags worth of treatments mm. that they've bought mm. from the internet and from others that they might have seen yes and whom perhaps are not medical and you know come to me really late down the line 
And mm. I appreciate how confusing things are. It is. And we're all desperate to have the perfect skin, perfect hair, everything else. And the um, social media sort of forces us almost. And it's very easy to get carried away. And you're right. I see a lot of women with bags of supplements, bags of products. And it's not only is it maybe not helping, but it's also costing them a lot of money. Yes. So I think having this little overview about hair interaction with hormones other reasons for hair changes has been really useful so thank you ever so much for your time finally just before you go could you just give us three tips about healthy hair in the menopause yeah okay well I guess tip number one is to avoid any tight hairstyles the hair especially if it's at a vulnerable stage does not like mm. traction or pull yeah so if you can leave your hair down it'll be better for the hair. Yep. The second is what I think we've just said, which is think about the health of the actual skin of your scalp. So it's not mm. just the hair, it's the skin around the hair that yes. you've got to keep healthy. And just have a think about whether you need any moisture replenishment, especially if you're mm -hmm. in the perimenopause. And we know that there's biological reasons why you've got less natural moisturizing agent mm -hmm. in the scalp. And I think the third is that if you're suffering from very brittle hair, then just be sensible about any sort of heat-based treatments that you're using, mm. hair drying, tongs, all sorts of things. You know, it does take its toll on the hair. And if it is already yeah. fragile because of the other reasons, then you kind of want to moderate that as well. Mm. So I think those Great are just the simple ones. That may help. Yeah, no, but that can make sometimes even a small difference can really Definitely. help. So that's been really useful. Thank you ever so much. And we'll put links with the podcast notes about how to get more information from Sajad. It's been brilliant. So thanks ever so much for coming today. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. For more information about the menopause, please visit our website www.menopausedoctor.co.uk.